we saw some survivors in their striped uniforms. The stripes were supposed to be black and white, but actually they were dark gray and light gray. I thought at first that a prison gate was opened uh, and some uh, criminals came out. But quickly I learned that there was a concentration camp and that they were survivors. I'm Leonard Linton, veteran of the 82nd Airborne Division, which has liberated the Wabelin concentration camp in northern Germany at the end of World War II. listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Leonard Linton was born in Yokohama, Japan, on New Year's Day, 1922. His parents were Russian-landed gentry who had fled the Russian Revolution. Leonard's father struggled to find work in Japan, so in the mid-twenties, he moved his young family to Germany. As Hitler rose to power in the early 1930s, the Lintons moved again, first to Paris and later to the United States. By the time young Leonard landed in a New York City high school, he was fluent in English, Russian, French, and German. He was an avid photographer and served as president of his high school's camera club. After college, Leonard enlisted in the U.S. military, volunteering to serve in a combat unit toward the end of World War II. Four decades later, Leonard is seated in a television studio in Union, New Jersey. It's December 16, 1988, and Leonard is being interviewed by Bernard Weinstein. Leonard wears a wide-lapelled gray tweed sport coat. His thin gray hair is combed straight back. Large, horn-rimmed glasses accentuate his square face. Leonard talks about a day in the spring of 1945. The U.S. military was advancing toward Berlin, and Leonard drove into Ludwigslust, a small city in northern Germany. I believe that I was the first trooper of the 82nd Airborne to come into Ludwigslust. In fact, I rushed into the town hall while a meeting of the mayor with all his administrators was in progress. And I barged in, sort of uh, rough and ready, threw my carbine on the table during the meeting and asked them what was this meeting all about. Were uh, you by yourself? I was by myself. Uh, I was tired, uh, dusty, uh, maybe two days of jeep riding, rushing as far and as quickly as we could, and I was certainly not in a very tender frame of mind near this end of the war. 
So they told me that the meeting was as to what to do in case the Americans arrive. So I told them the meeting is now ended because it's no longer a question of whether or not we will arrive. We are here and I'm taking over and as a representative of the 82nd Airborne Military Government, they are now under my direct uh, command to do as I order them. I stayed there maybe 20 minutes, certainly not even half an hour. I kept going because our orders were go on to Berlin. And so I kept going in my Jeep and a few kilometers outside of Ludwigslust, that's when we learned about the existence of the Wabelin concentration camp. I drove there, and when I arrived, an incredible sight greeted me. You can imagine that a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division is a fairly hardened individual. However, when I came into this concentration camp, I must say that to this day, and this was many years ago, an incredible and really undescribable disgust, a feeling, uh, a mixture of horror, repulsion. I am not good enough in uh, utilizing any language to describe this adequately. However, there was this barbed wire enclosure with an open gate in front. So I left my Jeep in front of the gate, stopped the engine, and walked in. There were several people, most of them were men, but there were a few women there also, maybe 20 or 30 people milling around. Some of them were in fair shape, but most of them were emaciated, haggard, looking, almost ambulatory corpses. I couldn't understand why they were still milling around in front of this horrible camp where, of course, the German guards had all uh, evaporated at our approach. Uh, and they simply said they didn't know where to go. They were afraid of the outside world. They were afraid of the Germans. They were afraid of everybody. Were they young, middle-aged, elderly? The ages ranged, I would say, the youngest were about uh, 10, maybe 12, 13 years old children, which they didn't really look like children. They just looked like children to me because of their size, although they looked like the others, nearly dead. I saw some people, a few, very few, who might have been around 40. But 
the majority, I would venture to guess where between 19 or so to about 30. Now, as I talked with some of them, I was curious who they were. What were they in for? They said, well, I'm from Lithuania. I'm from Poland. I'm from Czechoslovakia. I'm from uh, East Prussia. I'm from Belgium. I'm from France. I'm from Luxembourg. They were from all over, all over Europe. In fact, in Vabelin, unlike some of the other camps, the majority were non-Jews. So I was asking the non-Jews, what were they in there for? So one of them said, uh, I was denounced by somebody. Denounced for what? He sort of shrugged his shoulders. He doesn't know for what. He was just denounced. And... uh, One I met, I remember very well, he was a doctor from Prague. And I asked him, what was he there for? So he said, well, he was denounced because he treated a Jewish patient. I had my camera at the time, but in the beginning I couldn't really think even of taking pictures. There were several buildings one-story barrack-like buildings. So I walked into the first one. I believe there were three or four tiers of wooden bunks. The bunks were perhaps uh, a foot and a half, maybe two feet wide, uh, and the length of a normal, average human being. Uh, Rough wood with straw. And amazingly enough, there were people still alive in these bunks who were looking at me coming in without speaking, without uttering a sound. Then I'd go to the next barrack and I'd see the same site. There may have been 10% or so of the bunks were occupied or had people in them. Uh, Not all of them were alive. Some were obviously dead must have died uh, only a short time before my arrival there. I saw uh, in front of another building, against the building, a pile of corpses. Uh, Not very unlike uh, firewood piled against a building. That's more or less how they were stacked. Perhaps not as neatly. They were just sort of uh, piled uh, one on top of the other with faces uh, upside down and grotesque configurations, uh, mouths open, eyes open. Uh, As I was walking through there, one young fellow, uh, surviving inmate, Uh, accompanied me and I was talking with him and I would ask him uh, why are these people piled here so he said well they were just uh, we were told to pile put them there and we put them there so I'd say well what were they doing 
with them. He said, oh, well, they made us dig a pit, and after a few days, they'd throw the corpses into that <laughs> pit, and then they'd put a little bit of earth on top of them, layer by layer, until the pit would be full, and then they'd dig another pit and put uh, bury more. And these were just died uh, in the last day or the last hours, uh, uh, and even they keep dying. And then we walked around, I remember I saw one corpse laying in the street, sort of sprawled out. So I said, how come he's just laying there? He said, yes, he was shot by the doctor. I said, what, well, by doctor? Yes, a German uh, military doctor who was there. Uh, so he said, why did he shoot him? He said, well, the doctor didn't like that he looked at him. And the doctor pulled out his pistol and shot him for that. I have to also mention another feature that is unforgettable about this camp, which to this day still nauseates me. That is the odor. This was in May, northern Germany. The day was beautiful clear, a little nippy, not a warm day, but inside these barracks was a stench the likes of which I had never smelled before or after. Corpses rotting in the indescribable filth in their fecal matter, in the urine in the straw that was rotting, their clothing were rotting, and no air cleaning this out. I tried to speak little because I felt that I didn't want to open my mouth too much because I could feel almost the particles of that smell getting on my lips and when I talked getting into my mouth. It sickens me when I think of it to this day. I finished my visit and I had to drive back to town, to Ludwigslust. I accelerated the jeep on that road pretty fast. I remember I was holding the wheel in my hand and leaning as far out as I could from the jeep and opening my jacket, my vest, to let the wind clean me out. But for several days after that, I felt that my uniform smelled, that I smelled, that my boots smelled. Of course, I changed uniforms immediately. I went through five or six or maybe ten showers, and I couldn't get that smell out of me. It was, of course, in my mind... Uh, but it was horrible. Was, was the reaction of others similar to yours? Did Practically identical. Our disgust was not just with these physical conditions. We were appalled at the Germans for doing this to people. 
that a highly sophisticated nation of educated people like, like the Germans could sink to such behavior in 1933, when Hitler was making his demented speeches, I was only a young kid. I could already understand that this guy was completely crazy. Nevertheless, we saw that the German nation submitted. In fact, in my opinion, did more than submit. They yelled him into power, thinking that German will be great again. Uh, by bringing this madman into power. And so when we saw this concentration camp, we didn't have to be told in the 82nd Airborne about the non-fraternization policy which the United States Army had. We didn't want to shake a German hand. We didn't want to smile at a German. Of course, I stayed on in military government for two years after the war ended, and I realized that there were countless Germans who were really powerless to do much. The German secret police was really quite efficient. As a slight interlude, I might add that one thing that I did, how small the world is really, the railroad station of Ludwigslust was not bombed. And uh, I looked at it quickly. There was nobody in there. And I thought this was a good spot where to bring a couple of the survivors who I felt needed to be nursed back to life. One thing we learned is that there comes a point in their life when they don't want to live anymore. They look right through you with these sad, huge eyes. They don't care about anything. There is nothing worse than that because you can't cope with it. And they will die even though they're free. So a small group of French survivors in this camp, two of them, were in fair shape. And uh, one or two of the Frenchmen were not. They were going to die within a day or two. So I told them, why don't you take them in the railroad station? I'll bring you food and see if you can help this friend of yours. And indeed, after a few days, they nursed this fellow back from almost corpse-like appearance to where this fellow his eyes were focusing and looking at my eyes. And then he asked me, how come you speak French like that? So I said, well, I went to uh, Lycée Saint-Bernard. Uh, I went there too. We realized we were in the same class. Hmm. He did not recognize me, and I certainly did not recognize him. But we were in the same class. What a small world. Do you talk a great deal about it today? Not so much, I must say. What, in the last few years, I met a group of 
survivors from Vabelin. We became acquainted. Uh, when I see them, I'm happy to see that there's still people alive. But what amazes me is that so few of them are vengeful. I am more outraged personally at what the Nazis have done and I would like to see bloody revenge, if possible at all, against the guilty than the survivors themselves. But talking about the principle of collective guilt, I am not sure whether something like what the Nazis did cannot happen anywhere under different circumstances. In every nation, they're brutes. When Leonard Linton found the Vobelin concentration camp, there were 1,000 unburied corpses and hundreds more bodies buried in mass graves. There were no gas chambers or crematoria in Vobelin. Prisoners were worked to death and died of starvation and disease. In the weeks that followed, Leonard and his fellow American soldiers forced the Germans, both civilian and military, to give all the victims a proper burial at a Ludwigslust castle. He also helped set up medical care for survivors until they were repatriated. Leonard stayed in Germany for two years, working in Berlin as part of the U.S. military government. After he returned home, he built a global fertilizer business, married a Russian immigrant, had three children, and settled in Point Lookout, New York. Leonard Linton died in 2005. He was 83. To learn more about Leonard Linton, please visit thosewhowerethere.org. That's where you'll find additional background information and photographs Leonard took during his Army service. To hear more from those who were there, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to thosewhowerethere.org. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, and the Archives Director Stephen Naren. Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town and to Christy Tomachek, Joshua Green, and Inga Dataya for their assistance. Thanks as well to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to our social media team, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. <laughs>